Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We are here to discuss Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home. We're going to discuss pages, what, 200 to 250. This is, I believe, that would make us our fifth episode on this book. We're drawing close to the end. And that means that in this passage, a lot of action happened. I mean, actually, very little action happened, but a lot of things happened in deep theological discussion mm-hmm. <laughs> and off, off, off screen, so to speak. And um, I have a quick question that I want to just dive right into. Um, no small talk this week because Heidi's got to go pick up her kids. So we're just going gonna to dive right in. So here's the question. Last week, I, I brought up the idea that throughout the first half of this book, say, we get so much Jack and a lot of their father, but very little real glory, despite the fact that the book is from her perspective. Um, and so here's the question that I was thinking about while we were reading it this time. I, I was looking for more glory, more and more glory as we went, right? And then I started thinking, we, get, we have a book that we know there's a boy coming out called Jack. That's actually out now. We have Lila, which came out after home. And before this, we of course have Gilead, which is from Ames's perspective. And I thought it was interesting that Marilyn Robinson chose to make this second book from the perspective of glory and that there's no perspective from Bowton. So why do you think she chose to make this particular book about Jack coming home from his sister's perspective and not from the perspective of the long-suffering father, the character who has longed for his son to come home for so long. So, Sarah Jane, was the face that you just made an excitement at this question because you have something to say or was it, was there something else, maybe like your favorite soccer team just scored a goal or a something? condiment. The, yeah. <laughs> I, I just had a mild panic thinking, wait, I didn't check which edition of Home you are reading. And so I've oh. read pages 150 to 200. And I'm just hoping that there's some correlation with what you've read. But yes, my section did include a deep theological conversation. So that's a good start. <laughs> what did your section end with? It ended with, sorry, this might not even be interesting to people. I just thought it would be funny. If, if we I make mistakes, up. that's always, always interesting. Talking a thousand percent patterns. of the time. <laughs> It ends with um, Robbie getting a magnifying glass present from the popcorn in his um, in his popcorn because they go to the cinema. Yeah. Okay. So there's a little bit right after that that we read. Okay, I've read that too. Okay, that's fine. The big scene with uh, with Jack in the car, in the barn, and all that kind of stuff. Ah, well, I have read it before. But okay, I haven't yeah, read that. that. Okay, yeah, okay. that's the that's where we that's where uh, that's right where it ended. So we got the okay, that scene. that's fine. <clears throat> okay, and we're going to come back to that because we got a great email from a listener today that I want to bring up. But first, I want to touch on this point of view thing because I, I really, I, I was really, I'm not saying that she was wrong to do this or that she was right. I'm just mm-hmm. saying I was, I was really kind of consumed with this thought that she has not written of all the characters. She went even into into Lila, who we don't get a lot of in these first two books but we don't have the novel that's from the perspective of Boughton, who is this crucial character in all, these char- in all the other characters' lives, except maybe Lila. So why then does this book about Jack coming home, why does it come from the perspective of Glory, who we even meet very little 
in Gilead? I just was kind of consumed by that question. Heidi, what do you think about that? Why do you, why why glory and not Bowden? Oh, I mean, structurally to the novels, I'm not sure. I think it's a really good question. Uh, in terms of what I've read and heard Marilyn Robinson say, that there were just characters in this. When she wrote Gilead, she didn't know she was going to write anymore. And then there were characters that captured her imagination. And she she kept thinking about the same story through multiple perspectives. And so she wrote more novels. Um, and at least that's that's her claim and she should know. So, um, <laughs> But I think in terms of structurally for the books, like how the story unfolds, uh, it makes sense that Boughton and Jack himself would be kind of shrouded in mystery forever. She wrote this, she wrote Jack and everyone was surprised. She said she'd never write Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it makes sense that these two central characters, I mean, they, the crux of the conflict in this world, this literary world is the relationship between Jack and his father. And uh, so to me, it makes sense that those relationships would remain, you know, that those characters would remain open to interpretation from other more minor characters' perspectives. Mm. Um, So I am surprised that she wrote Jack and excited about it and like very, very nervous. I'm like really nervous to read it. I have it sitting on my bedside table and I just keep looking at it. (laughs) Like, I I don't know if I'm ready for that. (laughs) I saw a review today that said that it was, I I believe it was sublime or something like that. So there's a bit of encouragement for you. I've read only positive reviews uh, about the, the novel so far, but there's something about Jack being so mysterious and Boughton being so transparent. Um, they're kind of opposites in that way. That's a good point. So, okay. That's what kind of brought the question up for me because as I was reading, we'd get to these big scenes. There's the, you know, in, including the large theological conversation on the Ames porch about predestination, right? And I kept noticing that Glory would leave, right? And so when Glory, who's our main narrator, point of view person, when she leaves, we're not privy to the conversation anymore. And so it it creates this distance. And so it it creates, um, I think, less resolution for the reader as we're going because we're not privy to everything Jack's saying. We're not privy to every little bit of um, uh, of dialogue that would help us kind of unravel what's going on. I think it makes it more complex as a reader. Do you, Do you think... Sarah Jane, that had she told the story from Boughton's perspective, it would have been because he's sort of opaque as a character, uh, that it would have been less complex? I think I want to pick up on what you were saying about there being less resolution and, and that we're not privy to everything because mm-hmm. Glory is, is, is a closed character. Mm-hmm. She is a closed character, but the thing is, she has more access to Jack's secret life than Barton does. So in a way, Glory can tell can tell us the minutiae of things that she observes when she's doing Jack's laundry, when she's going out to look around the barn, when she's watching yeah. him in the garden. And yeah. Barton is asleep most of the time and has a, there's a kind of reverential distance between father and son, which is very painful in the novel. Mm-hmm. So he simply wouldn't have been able to tell the story of Jack. He would have been able to tell his version of Jack, but Glory is a better observer of Jack, mm. I think. And so it's also an interesting challenge 
that Marilyn Robinson has set herself because Gloria is such a closed character it's harder to tell the story in a way and I think you know talented writers like to set that difficult challenge sometimes and um the other thing I thought as well is from an artistic perspective Borton and Ames are similar Mm-hmm. So it would essentially be writing another novel with a very similar character telling the story. He's yeah. another minister who has a kind of distance from Jack. Um, so I think Glory gives more variety to the narrative voices in this. Well, it was a trilogy. What is it now? A tetralogy. Tetralogy. <laughs> Isn't it? Couldn't you make the case, though, that it sells Glory short? Because ultimately this is... Gilead is the story of it's from Ames's perspective, and it's really Ames's story. Jack is ostensibly going to be from Jack's perspective and be Jack's story. Lila is from Lila's perspective and is Lila's story. But in a way, home is Jack's story also, but it's from Glory's perspective. And you could, I don't know exactly the word, like the, I don't want to, I'm not accusing Marilyn Robinson of anything. I'm just wondering if it's, if it leaves, if it, if it does a disservice to, to Gloria as a character. I mean, don't you she, think that's she, one of the whole points though? That's, I think that's one of the whole points of this novel is that everybody is lost because Jack is lost. Like, and, and, and her being sold short is one of the, you know, pieces of collateral damage from what's happening in this family. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of deepens the pathos that she's the, she's like the one with the voice and yet she's ent- almost entirely voiceless, even about, about her own story. She's the recorder of other people's stories and she doesn't have one herself, even though she does, like she has a story and it's lost in this larger tragic narrative go ahead Sarah. it really astonished me as Heidi was saying uh, how Glory's story is lost because for all the secrets that Jack keeps we know so much more about him than Glory and yes. Glory's father doesn't know why she quit teaching or Never anything about asked. her relationship no so she is so um guarded was the word you used last week and um I can't really fathom that that her father doesn't know that about her, what this whole relationship she's had and the letters and everything and the reason she left her career. Hmm. Whereas the father does know, he says, I, in this section, doesn't he, he says, I kind of know Jack didn't graduate from college and <laughs> the children think that he doesn't know that at all and that they've kept it from him. But actually, Bolton knows a lot more than he lets on. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually an interesting uh, point. I was thinking this week while reading that there seems to be some question about what he thinks he knows and what he actually knows. Like, does he, is he assuming the worst about Jack? Like he, he seems to be assuming the worst about Jack, even in places where he ought not to do so. Like where things aren't as bad as he actually thinks they might be. But I wonder if some of that is Robinson's use of Gloria as the narrator, like the sort of her, her point of view is both the most comprehensive with all these characters, as you were saying, uh, Sarah Jane, she's got the most access to the most characters. And yet, because she's a kind of a guarded, closed character, she's also withholding a lot from us and not always 
she doesn't always know herself. So we're both mm-hmm. trying to discover these other people from a character who, while having access to them, does not necessarily want to reveal anything about herself. And Sam seems not to even know herself. And so that makes the whole experience very complicated. So then one of the questions I had is how much can we actually, how much of, of her interpretation of scenes should be taken at face value? So for example, the deep theological scene, she is interpreting the faces that characters are making at one another in very specific ways. And we as the reader on, on first glance have to sort of take that for granted. We have, to, we have to accept her perspective on it, that Jack's face in a moment is telling the true story of how he feels or that Ames is... like She's very, as you said, observant, Sarah Jane. But I wonder, are her observations always accurate? How do you read her? How do you, how do you read her in terms of how she is interpreting the way other people are feeling in a specific moment? Because we obviously know that she has her own set of preconceived notions of other people and also her own set of feelings that she's bringing to a, to a scene. I... Um, Sorry, I let that I was trust, a little abrupt ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I trust her. I, uh, I think that Marilyn Robinson does a remarkable job of, of characterizing. I mean, these are character-driven novels. They're very literary character-driven novels. And I know people like Glory. They're very observant. Like she, I can, I can feel like I can see her in my mind and feel her with me in a room. I'm incredibly observant, very tuned in to other people and not to themselves. And so I do, I trust her observations. And I think on a literary level, we're meant to trust her. I don't think we're meant to question her observations um, because Marilyn Robinson doesn't give us any clues in the novel that she is unreliable in her powers of observation and masterful writers do give those clues if we are meant to question observers that's my that that's how i read it what do you think either of you sarah jane go ahead yeah looking specifically at the the conversation on the porch about predestination glory finds it really awkward and i think the sense i get throughout the novel is that she hates confrontation And as the youngest in the family, she's always trying to resolve it. I remember actually speaking to boys and she said that the youngest in the family always, the youngest child always bears all the burdens because they're the last to leave the home. And I get that sense with Glory that she's trying to, she's carrying that. And so she's she's always trying to make amends and she's always trying to smooth things over. But it does actually make her quite powerful and that she's she's very deft in the way that she can control how things move, um, especially for Jack. She can make things go in particular directions. So at one point she comes onto the porch and says, your five minutes aren't up yet. You know, you need to get this off your chest. And then she comes back later and with a look, Jack is ready to end the conversation and knows that he's gone too far. And... Um, there's a real dexterity to Glory, the way she will sort of go down the road in the night and sort of set up a meeting for Jack with Ames without him even realising how she's positioned things. So she's quite a skillful operator. Manipulator? I want to qualify. <laughs> well, um, I do want to qualify. I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, I want to qualify what I said earlier. I do think that there are some clues in the novel that she's unreliable in her perceptions of what people think about her, specifically Jack. 
there's, I think there's plenty of clues that Marilyn Robinson gives us that she misinterprets Jack towards her in various conversations, things that trigger her insecurities, things that she doesn't want to talk about, ways that she sees, she interprets his body language and words uh, that he doesn't mean to. And I think that Robinson gives us enough clues as to why that is too, like what those sensitive areas are for her and how the people around her trigger those things. Um, but I, I just want to qualify that, but I do think that Sarah Jane, you're exactly right in this particular, um, in this theological conversation, which isn't a theological conversation and who is the one who figures that out? It's Lila, right? Um, it's the women. They, there, there's always a question behind a question a hundred percent of the time. And it's Lila and Glory who see that and, and identify that and try to manage that. And it's interesting. There are two reactions to it. Like Glory's reaction is to try to mitigate the pain, the emotional pain that the, that the men are feeling in that conversation and to kind of, and to, and to mitigate and to deflect, which is very much what they do in their family. Right. And, the, but on the other side, Lila's I, I love Lila. Man, I can't wait to read that novel. I love her. This is what she does. She sees the question behind the question that Jack is asking and she answers it directly. She waits till everybody's done babbling and then yeah. she's like, people can change. That's what he's asking. Yeah. I, I think that you're really onto something here when you talk about the idea of deflection because what they're doing is mm-hmm. they they deflect what their feelings or what needs to actually be said. They delay it behind the abstractions. Yes. Um, and that's part of why they can't... We've been talking for weeks now about the idea of characters trying to connect. And they can't connect because they keep... Particularly Boughton does. They keep passing each other in the night of abstraction, you know, so to speak. Um, right. Go ahead, Sarah Jane. It's uh, on the subject of abstraction. It's, it's, it's painful that Jack has to go into the attic to find an article from the 1950s in order to find a way to start a conversation with... Yeah, his sort of surrogate just go ask. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's all this subterfuge. But, so yeah, they're really but, hard. Which brings to, brings up it, they're all at fault though. Like it's not like yep. Jack is just doing his darndest, so to speak, to connect with these other guys, and they're You're just totally ignoring right. him. He can't bring himself to ask either. And there's that moment when they go later in the, in this section when Bowden and Jack are at the house and the women and Robbie had gone to the movies and then Jack stays behind at the end. And then they all come over for dinner afterwards. There's a lot of going back and forth there. And then that's when we find out that Jack has left and Bowton said that he, he only stayed or Ames says he only stayed for a few minutes. He clearly couldn't get out what he wanted to ask. And so everybody's just caught up in this cycle of not being able to actually ask what they need or answer what the other person actually needs. Like there's no discussion about what actually needs to be discussed and they hide behind the abstractions. And I find that really effective because I find those conversations disorienting because I don't know who, what to pay attention to as a reader. Now, maybe this is because I'm not, you know, emotionally attuned or something like that um, or self-aware enough, but I find myself not sure whether in these complex theological discussions to pay close attention to the theological stuff that they're talking about and whether I need to be really tuned into like trying to assess the theology of what they're saying or whether I'm supposed to be attuned to the emotional stakes of the moment. Because the way that she presents the emotional stakes of the moments involves a lot of sort of sleight of hand and very subtle gestures and asides in the writing. 
But then she has this very eloquent, like these characters wax very eloquently, so to speak, about the theology. And so I, I spend half the time not being attuned to either of those things because mm-hmm. I'll be trying to s- decipher what they're saying theologically. And then all of a sudden I'm distracted by the emotional moment. And then I go to a page and I've lost the track of the theological arguments. And then I'm trying to spend the next page tracking with the theological arguments to get back into that. And then I've lost the emotional thread. So I think she's doing that on purpose, mm-hmm. obviously, and it's very right. genius, but also it, it, it brings me into the moment in a way that probably is some sort of um, mirror of the way the characters are feeling. Right. It's, I think it's just, it's incredible. And I think what you, I hadn't thought of it that way until what you guys were both just saying, unlock that. Hmm. I think what you're saying is true. Like it, that's an insightful way of putting it. And I think we do feel the same disorientation that the characters are feeling because there's so much going on uh, in that, and in, in that conversation and in moments like it, because I think the novel this is obviously a turning point in the novel, but I, I think that the novel is full of this kind of weighted moments that are reflected in uh, the conversations and the dynamics and the surroundings. And, and then also taking into account the fact that the reader is bringing to the story our own, uh, our own stories, right? And there's an intersection there, um, right. particularly with family dynamics, right? We all know what those uncomfortable family dinners feel like, and I'm saying something and I'm you know, I really mean something else and how's this person going to respond and all that kind of thing. But I think that that's what great novels do. To your your point, David, that is what great novels do. Any given weighty moment in a novel is going to have three circles or levels of meaning, like the the personal meaning to the character, the, uh, and then in that center level or circle, I see it like concentric circles in my mind. And then outside of that, in the surrounding circle, you have kind of the the question of the dynamics of the society they're in, whether it's a family or town or whatever, um, or country or nation. And then beyond that, there's the universal question, the question of, is Jack meant to be, for example, here, it's, is Jack meant to be a vessel set apart for destruction, or is there some kind of intervening grace that's holding him this whole time? And, um, and it's, meant to be ambiguous. And this conversation reflects that because the characters don't know, the society doesn't know. And then that still remains a human mystery to this day. So there's like all of those levels are functioning in this conversation and in this entire novel. And it is a bit disorienting. And I like what you said about not knowing how to, what to focus on, because I think that that's uh, kind of a general feeling in, in a approaching a novel that, as you pointed out earlier, David, doesn't have a lot of action. And yet underneath the surface, there's this giant weight of the iceberg under the surface. And we only see, you know, the, the little bit and the action. And, and man, Robinson does a brilliant job of, of evoking that. Mm. I think it was said in, in a previous episode that most of the action in this novel has already happened. And we're finding out about it through little revelations, confessions, snippets of things that come out through other conversations. Um, One thing that is so disorientating about this conversation is that exactly as you said, Heidi, it's not really a theological conversation, but in a sense, every theological conversation is about family history. So this is about theodicy, but in that sense, it's also asking why is Jack as he is? Why did Ames's daughter die? Why did Jack's daughter die? And there's this burden of guilt that they 
Jack wants to know which way it shifts. Is it the sins of the father onto the son, or is it the sins of the son onto the father? And, and well, the thing about the that, problem the novel kind of explores a lot, I think. Yeah, because because either because the that's the central question. Because no matter what, he has a pro, he has a problem because he's both of those roles, and like the, it's a rock and a hard place. Hmm. There's no way out of this that cycle for him. He's he's stuck in the middle and he of of he's both the father and the son. So. Yeah. I, and reading this again, having read it all, there's another reason why this is so so important and it's so different re- for me reading it now a second time knowing what comes later why Jack is asking these questions. Do you want to do you want to spoil it? No, well I don't it? want to spoil the novel. <laughs> It's not, don't spoil uh, it. I don't know yet. Yeah. But I'll you will come back to this podcast. in your mind. The readers will. Yeah. I think, oh, okay. But it's really interesting. Glory thinks this is about Ames's child dying and that Jack's being super insensitive mm-hmm. and, right. and is trying to lay the guilt at his door. And Borton wants to accept the guilt and thinks it's about him and his own son who's sitting there making him feel guilty. And and Lila gets it. She gets that it's about Jack, but everybody thinks it's about Jack's deceased daughter. Mm. Mm. And it might not be. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I want to take a step back to what I said to the conversation that we were having that kind of started this, this, this part of the conversation where I asked about Glory's trustworthiness, for lack of a better word. Because Robinson does this thing that I find to be very interesting where in the middle of conversations, she will have Glory's assessment of what's going on be qualified. So, for example, for me, it's on 221 in this conversation. Um, Bouton says, fate is not a word I have ever found useful. Jack says, it's different from predestination then. As night and day, his father said authoritatively. Then he closed his eyes. And then we get, Glory thought she saw trouble looming. Ames and her father had quarreled over this any number of times, but her father asserting the perfect sufficiency of grace with something like ferocity, while Ames maintained with a mildness his friend found irksome that the gravity of sin could not be gainsaid. Could Jack have forgotten? She stood up. She said, excuse me, I hate this argument. I've heard it a thousand times and it never goes anywhere. So then they address that. But the way she sets this scene up is very interesting to me because we get the father saying something very authoritatively from Gloria's perspective. You know, there's this, he, has, he makes this big assertion that fate and predestination are as different as night and day. And then he closes his eyes. It's like he's sitting there and he's this like towering, he's like the godfather or something. He makes this authoritative statement and then he closes his eyes as if to rest his case. And then it says, Glory thought she saw trouble looming. And then she makes this big assessment of what's happening in the moment. And my question is, is her is are things as bad in the moment as she is assessing them to be? Because it doesn't say Glory saw trouble looming. It says she thought she saw trouble looming. So her her assessment of what's going on is qualified through through the you know in the mm-hmm. way that Mar- uh, Marilyn Robinson proposes it or you know presents it right after this moment where her, the father has been extremely authoritative. Is this just a bit of um, to show that Gloria herself is not as authoritative as some of these other characters are? Is it meant to show like? scales of sensitivity or something or do you i mean is is it she does this a lot robinson does this a lot with glory mm-hmm. is there something to the fact that all of her observations her assessments of what's going on well not her observations her observations i think we can take at face value 
but her assessment of what those observations mean seem to be qualified to some degree. Mm-hmm. So how do yeah. we interpret that? Sarah Jane, what do you think? We'll go, I'll go backwards from the last time. I, I just want to kind of dig into this a little deeper. Am I reading too much into this? Either, you I, either. I don't think so. I just wonder, I just, my question is just, why is that a problem? Is it not okay for her to be unreliable and getting things wrong and for the novelist then to have other means of um, alerting the readers to that? I mean, you're absolutely right because here her father says it's not an argument. <laughs> She's terrified right. about this argument. He says, I wouldn't call it an argument. Um, but I think that helps us to understand the shades of... Glory's character, her anxiety mostly, I think. Yeah. And just to clarify, I'm not necessarily saying it's a problem. Like I'm not, and I'm not necessarily Mm -hmm. saying it's a, and I'm definitely not saying it's a flaw, but it does mean that we have to be careful as readers about how, about what we take away from what she is taking away from it. So in, at any given time in a conversation in which there's some a perceptive person watching what's going on and, and, and wants to somehow intervene and save people from themselves and each other. There's two levels to that, right? There's there's the level of there's or the fun there's two functions to it. There's the function is observe one is observation and the second is interpretation. So I think Glory's observations about things that are going on and what people are feeling, the novel seems to be saying that those things are reliable. Her interpretations of that, like where that comes from, what the source of it is, what she should do about it, what people mean, that's sometimes those interpretations seem to be filtered through her own fears, insecurities, and and past. And I think Robinson gives us enough in the novel to discern that. Um, you know, what you said, I haven't finished the novel, so I don't know what's going on. I could guess, and I think I'm probably right. Uh, but <laughs> I don't confidently know, said. right. I don't know. I could be wrong, yeah. but I think I can guess what's coming, especially because the letters were returned. Like there's there, I have an expectation of what I think is going to happen, but masterfully glory doesn't. And so she takes, she interprets the observations that she is uh, seeing in this and perceiving in this co- in this conversation through the information that she has, mm-hmm. and and comes up with an interpretation, and that interpretation may be wrong, but I think her her observations are sound, and I think that does matter actually because if we do rely a lot on the subtle hints that she gives us about like the looks on people's faces and uh, the gestures that Jack makes and uh, the, the, the tone of voice when Boughton says, you know, oh, I'm a sinful man, you know, those kinds of things. I think that we do kind of have to rely on her observations and not question them in order to get to the heart of the novel. Her interpretations, I think, are up for grabs, though. It's also not told strictly from Glory's perspective, is it? This isn't a right. first-person narrator. This is a third person narrator using free and direct style, mostly from the perspective of Glory. But Marilyn Robinson has carved out a bit of space for herself there too. There's a kind of omniscience as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, especially in this section, there was way more, if you use the show tell dichotomy, like there's a lot more telling in this section that we read than there's been in the whole novel up to now. There's a couple of 
passages that are several paragraphs long that Marilyn Robinson is just telling us what's going on. And I, that kind of um, took me by surprise, honestly. Uh, yeah, but I think they're usually they're usually uh, glo- glories in her life coming out. Maybe. Like they're usually exp- it's usually explaining what's happening in Glory's heart <laughs> mind. Okay, so let's transition a little bit here because I want to bring up this email that was that was brought. This might this is a little little bit abrupt, but that was sent over. See if I can find it here. It was sent by Elizabeth Hammergren. She is not on Facebook, so she can't comment there. But I want to share what she said because I th- I think it's it's apropos in light of this conversation about predestination and then what ultimately happens at the end of this section. And I actually, just in case people's page numbers are off more than I thought, we'll hold off on discussing the very dramatic moment that involved the car and the barn and the shirt and all that. And we'll do that mm-hmm. either next episode or in the Q&A episode because I want to make sure that everyone got a chance to get there. So we'll hold off on t- talking about that too directly. So this... this um, this email here touches on some of the themes in the the predestination conversation. It's a few paragraphs long, so I'm going to read it, um, and then we'll talk about it. So Elizabeth says, I think you guys should consider the angle that Jack is saved. He just doesn't look like he is from surface appearances. Right. What is it in the novel that makes you think he isn't? Can you not be saved if you're an alcoholic in recovery, if you slip up, if you stole things as a teenager? He clearly loves and fears God and is immersed in his word. The father cares a lot about appearances. I suspect that it is his overcaring that drove Jack to some of his pointless teen behavior. The other kids seemed to have gone along with it, but Jack couldn't bring himself to. Jack wanted a real relationship, not veneer culture which is a term she says she's stealing from Heidi from the first episode. The reason Glory is the other sibling with a major role in the book is that she is, a con- she is the contrast. She went along with the veneer culture of the family and is still reluctant to let it go. She won't change the house. She won't tell the father about her non-marriage. She brings her earthly father, Glory. She puts that in quotation marks, but she isn't so sure she is glorifying her heavenly father. She knows she is pious and dutiful, but she isn't sure how to handle the side of herself that left that box. I think Jack came back to honor his earthly father and probably to work out some issues he's learning from his own fatherhood of a child who, uh, who is very different from him on the surface, just as he was different from his father on the surface. I think his coming back is the saving of glory. What a hopeful book. I think Marilyn Robinson is exploring the difference between people who look saved and people who have wrestled with God, been bruised and muddied and embraced his love. Just a few thoughts. Keep up the good work. So I wanted to go ahead and read all that. And then I'm just going to open that up for conversation. Heidi, she referenced you a couple times in there, some of your thoughts, your use of the phrase veneer culture. So I'm going to turn to you first. And Sarah Jane is writing notes. So then that way she'll get a chance to either refute or agree with what you're saying, like a debate. She's taking notes like in a debate. <laughs> <laughs> so hence, you're supposed to disagree with me and then we can like mud wrestle or something. Yeah. Um, so, don't, get, don't, um, don't, make, don't get too uh, violent. I, I think that those are really insightful comments. I, I absolutely agree completely with the, uh, with the question of could Jack be saved? I think that that is the question. Um, obviously, there's uh, Bouton is afraid that he's not and, and takes as evidence of that Jack's troubled youth and uh, his lack of of repentance and engagement in spiritual things in the present, the present of the novel. Um, and 
Marilyn Robinson seems to be asking the deeper question, which is, is it possible that there is all, that there's some kind of intervening grace that's holding Jack throughout this and not letting him go. And that's why he's so internally tormented. Um, I'm really curious what kind of evidence we have that, uh, or that, that Elizabeth sees that Jack loves God. That I don't know that I see in the novel, but I'm absolutely open to being persuaded of that. What does um, it see? That, that, that's the first time I saw that, my question was, okay, I see the fear part, part, obviously. Do I see the love part? And then I started thinking, well, what does it actually mean to love God? So we could have that conversation question. if we want. <laughs> it is a good question. And, and, but I also say along with that, what evidence do we have that glory, the, the other half, as she said, they're, they're these mirroring characters opposite wise, like they're doubles, but they're opposite from each other. They're the older brother and the prodigal who remain lost, at least thus far in the story. They have not yet been found and reconciled to the father, whether the father is Bowden or, um, um, uh, or the heavenly father. Uh, and, and I think that's true. I, I would argue that they, neither of them are reconciled to their earthly or their heavenly fathers right now. Um, I, I, so I do see evidence that Jack is, loves his earthly father and is really longing for reconciliation for, or approval maybe from him and from Ames. Um, and we, that's explored even more in Gilead. Um, and, oh, but the other, I don't know that I see evidence of glory loving God either. Loving God, like truly loving and finding comfort and rest. And uh, the way that we, you know, somebody who has a really intimate relationship with the Lord might say, the might might compare, right? We see her performing actions, as Elizabeth points out, Um I say we do see that in Boughton, though. I say that we see Boughton loving God and longing for his children to experience God the same way, but completely unable to connect with them in a meaningful way in order to communicate that and lead them toward it. Seems Sarah Jane. Which is maybe why they haven't, those are the two that haven't left home. Hmm. Yep. That's their, good. Their souls are kind of restless, aren't they? They haven't found a new place. Um Oh, Elizabeth, you've got me puzzled here. Is Jack saved? Well, I think he's kind, he's kind of on the journey, but I think there's quite lots of big theological questions behind this, covenantally and stuff. So I'm, I, I like the idea that he is, but he hasn't kind of got through that kind of sanctification process yet. Um, I haven't seen a lot of repentance from Jack, though. It's more like he kind of says that's just what I'm like. I'm kind of, I've got this mark of Cain and this is how I behave. That's my, uh, that's my sort of justification. This is such a good, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I like, I really like that structural idea of glory and Jack as opposites. Um, a veneer of piety versus this kind of more rugged searching for a genuine faith. Possibly. Maybe it's a bit of an imposition. Not sure. Um, what I thought was brilliant about what Elizabeth said is that Jack wrestles with God or wants to. And actually mm -hmm. in the novel, in the last section we read, he is compared to Jacob. He wants to say that he's Esau and his father says to him, no, you're not the hairy man. And, and so Jack wrestles with God and he does kind of walk with a limp, doesn't he? So maybe Marilyn Robinson mm -hmm. is drawing that parallel. And that, that maybe that's what the next novel Jack is going to be about. 
because that moment where he's baptized at the end of Gilead is very powerful. So that must mean something. And um, now that you mentioned it, the names, like you could easily get from Jacob to Jack names wise, if you just wanted to be, you know, a little, you don't want to be too direct about it as an author. So, okay. So this idea that Jack is, is saved. Um, Sarah Jane, the first thing you said made me think of something is the question there seems to be this jack seems to be unsure of him, whether, himself whether he's saved can you can you restate your first point there did you write it down so that you can because i because i wanted to get my question right okay you said she's shaking her head no sorry i um, i i didn't i just i wrote very rough notes how do you remember it david and then she can correct you if you're wrong well, I'm, the points are all confused now, so I don't know that I remember it at all. Like, I think I got them all mixed up. Uh, but there's this question for me of whether he clearly is a. Af- you mentioned Bowden is afraid that Jack is not saved. Yes, and Jack is also concerned mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Um, Was it about repentance? No. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was about the idea that Jack is himself is afraid of it, afraid that he might not be saved because. Um, oh, he says where he's, oh, maybe it was about repentance. You said he just kind of says, this is the way that I am. And that seems to be tied to the question of his own fear of whether he's saved. Like he probably has some question of, do I behave the way that I am do because I can't overcome some sort of temptation or is it because that I am the way that I am and I don't have a choice? Like Mm -hmm. I have been sort of damned to be this way, to act this way, to do the things that I don't want to do. Or is that there is that I can't overcome something in myself that I should be able to overcome? And he seemed to be wrestling with that that question. The question of do I have any agency over the choices that I make? Or have I been put on this earth to be some to be one of the people who is gonna make decisions against my better judgment despite the choices the way that I want to be? Um and that's obviously closely tied to his fears or doubts about whether he he has saved himself. And that's, I think, where there's a, the guilt, there's the, the questions of guilt are tied to those questions. Mm-hmm. Because the, how, to what degree should he feel guilty seems to be a big question for him. He brings up David and Bathsheba and all these other biblical stories, right? Like, how guilty do I need to feel for what I've done? And it seems to me that until he can answer that question, the full scale of repentance that is necessary may not be possible for him because he like, it's like he has, you know, there's this question of rock bottom that keeps coming up and it's like to hit, to be truly repentant, he has to hit rock bottom in terms of understanding his actual agency and the things, the choices that he has made. And he like, there's this sense that he has to stop blaming his father and accept his own responsibility. And his father has to accept his responsibility for them. They both have to be able to repent, to reconcile and Bowton seems to want to more than Jack seems to want to. And even, I don't know if I even believe that. I don't know. But they, neither of them can get around to doing that to get to a point where they can reconcile. It's like they both have to hit maximum guilt to, where, to, be, to be able to get to the point where they can reconcile, which is almost a sort of dark view of things. Heidi, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think that your point about rock bottom is one of the most confusing parts of the novel to me. Uh, like it's a bit bewildering to me because I keep waiting for some revelation about Jack that justifies everybody's fears. 
Um, like I, I'm a therapist. I've seen alcoholics that have done horrific things, horrific things. There does not seem to be enough depravity in Jack's life to justify the angst of, that everybody seems to feel, the fear and the angst that everybody seems. We're not at the end of the story, but I have read Gilead. So mm-hmm. I, I just keep the fact that he got drunk and is sitting in the car and like, he didn't go to church a couple times and he had a child. Like there's, there's, there's that, that, and that's bad. I'm not minimizing that. Um, I'm really not. And I'm also, I am taking into account, I can see the Facebook posts right now. Like I am taking into account Midwest Christian culture um, as well. Uh, and I, I understand the, the pressure of that. Um and the expectation of that and the culture of that. Um, I was raised in that too. I was actually raised a five-point Calvinist as well. Um, but all that to say, there's that. And then there's the existential fear that would come from believing that there are people set apart for hell and damned from the beginning of their lives. And that to me is more than enough to justify the fear. And, and I think that's where what you said earlier, David, about the theological abstraction comes in. Because I, I, I like the fact that Ames and Boughton have been arguing over this for years. Like they, they've passed many a pleasant evening drinking iced tea on the porch and talking about predestination, right? But now this is Boughton's son. Like, do you really believe this? That's the question behind the question. And if you do, what does that do to your relationship with your son? And what if you're right? What if you're right? And he really is a vessel set apart for destruction. And then what if you're wrong, right? Like, what if, what if that isn't true? Or what if he's saved and you're the reason why he doesn't know that? Like, that's, there's all of these complicated kind of, and I love that Marilyn Robinson doesn't let such a question remain an abstraction. She wrote a novel about it. She written many essays and given many interviews on the subject. Um, and her own views kind of go more, more along with what Ames said um, in the conversation about the mystery and the grace. Um, but I, I just think I love the fact that she gives us a character like Jack and is like, what do you believe about this? This isn't an abstraction. It's a real question about human life. And if you've built your life on this theologically and given your life to the ministry and believing these things, what does it mean if you have a wayward child? And, and that's a real question for many, 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 many families, probably many of our listeners here and in my own family. So I, I think that that's an important an important aspect to the novel is that she's wrestling with this and attempting to not allow it to remain an abstraction. What you're saying is making me realize that the, that ultimately the thing that keeps them all from connecting is fear. Yes. And that's yes. like, maybe that's obvious, but I don't know that I have thought about it quite that way. The thing that keeps, you know, them from being able to ultimately express that they forgive each other um, to give people a chance to start over all that, you know, from every character except Robbie probably and Lila maybe are hmm. 
interacting with with each other out of some sort of fear and for you know um Bouton fears for for Jack and Jack fears for himself and uh, he you know glory fears for all of them and herself and Ames fears for all of them and himself and and his child and his new wife and there's this this barrier of fear that keeps them all from being able to actually um I don't know what's better word than connect yeah I wanted to land on one thing that Heidi said which I thought was a salient point um when you said Heidi that Boughton himself is in some way the obstacle to Jack knowing that he's saved um I I kind of read this that one of the problems in the family more than fear is doubt and that Boughton doubts the covenant promises of the Lord to his children. And so Jack's being brought up thinking, am I saved? Am I saved? And his father's saying, you're, you're not saved. Are you going to get saved? And that creates this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. Forgiveness then becomes a, a real problem as well. And, and Jack is there in the living room saying he has to beg a blessing from his father. So mm-hmm. there is a disconnect there that the father's, as you were saying, Heidi, the father's theology has got in the way of mm-hmm. the joy that would otherwise abound, I suppose, in the family. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is it- Which brings up, but makes it really complicated. I'm only, it, it, <laughs> I think that's what Marilyn Robinson is doing is kind of taking these buried uh, existential crises that come from abstraction and saying, here, what reader, what are you going to do? What are you going to, how are you going to grapple with this? Mm-hmm. Ames is the most inclined to abstraction, I find. And Ames is, is Marilyn Robinson's favorite character, I think. Mm. And he, he's very keen to avoid giving any definite answers. And Jack is sort of saying, come on, you're a minister. Do, is this what you say to people? Is this what you say to your congregation? Yeah. And and Ames does insist that it, it is a mystery we cannot hope to penetrate. Which Jack finds hmm. unsatisfying as an answer. David, you started to say something. I guess I was going to say, in some ways, I I wonder if, despite her affection for Calvin and deep theological thought if 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 it's a this book is a grappling with the nature of like how we do theology mm-hmm. um is it maybe even a if if the theology itself it is getting in the way which maybe is not to criticize you but is maybe too fine of a, a strong of a way to put it i don't know maybe um then yeah, no yeah i see what you mean i, I meant Boughton specifically though i think that yeah right yeah that jack has always felt left out of these conversations even though his it seems like his knowledge of scripture would qualify him to be involved right but yeah. it's always like right. no 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 jack yeah. don't comment on that kind of thing yeah 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 it's, it's uh, and don't you think go, go ahead go, no go ahead go no well don't you think that the reason that jack i just i look at that whole conversation and I'm like, Jack isn't asking a theological question. He's asking a personal question. He's, he's couching it in an abstraction and in, in a theological format, because that's what Boughton 
and Ames like to talk about, and that's the culture of their family, and that's how they've been formed and conditioned to have any kind of conversation. But what he's asking is, can I change, and do you love me? Like, that's what he's saying here. And, and Lila sees that, and I think Glory does. I think Glory is so observant to the fine kind of points of what's going on, what people are feeling and, um, and, but she's not, she can't kind of put the fine point on it that Lila can. Lila's like, this is what you're asking. I'm going to answer it. Like what, well, I think what Glory's doing is she sees like the, that they're suffering and is trying to kind of resolve that, mitigate it and deflect it as we've already talked about. Um, and I even think that Boughton and Ames know that because they take the conversation from the realm of the theological into the realm of the personal a couple times and they address Jack directly, but they don't say anything personal to him. They don't say anything like, son, you know, Boughton, Ames doesn't say, I preached that message, mm-hmm. you know, and we, for those who've read Gilead, we know about that, right? Like we know what happened there. It's so interesting reading it from this perspective. Um, and uh, but he doesn't, they recognize that there's a question behind the question too, but they don't address it directly. They continue to talk about theology. But what Jack is saying is like, do you guys love me? Do you care about me? Do you see me? Mm-hmm. Nobody's, nobody addresses that except Lila. And it's it's also come, the whole conversation's come about, hasn't it? Because Ames has preached on Hagar and Ishmael. Yes. And Jack was really upset by that. So this is an attempt at reconciliation. Do you do you think he was right in his assessment of of um what Ames was trying to do there? Do you, in other words, do you think he was right to be to take it as personally as he did? That sermon? Ooh. Um yes, but then I also think Ames wasn't preaching it personally to inflict it upon Jack because we know that from Gilead. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you hear a sermon, it does personally convict you sometimes. That can't be wrong. Right, right. Yeah. So so you think he was right to feel conflicted, but probably wrong to feel attacked. Yeah, I, I don't think that that was... Well, we know from Gilead that wasn't Ames' intention. He didn't so then, know Jack was going to be in the service. So then what do we make of Glory and Boughton's sort of being so desperately hurt by it, like feeling affronted, you know, uh, by it because they're just going off of the way jack took it yeah that's misplaced isn't it that's a family loyalty bearing that grievance with jack that's one of the things that makes this novel so complicated is they're both always constantly so upset with him but then as soon as some like they then they desperately take his side you know they like stand arm in arm i mean i guess that's that's true of it's a very true thing in some ways you know it's the old i'll fight with my brother till we break each other's teeth but then if anyone else tries to break his teeth i'll break their teeth type of thing (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, probably very true thing for a lot of people. We're at an hour and eight minutes. So I wanted to, um, before I ask you for your final thoughts, before we head into the last section of this book, I wonder if you each have, I never know. And then I do this. Uh, if you have a passage that stood out to you in particular during this reading, perhaps just because it was so lovely or it made you think about something and you haven't been able to get out of your head for a couple of days. Um, I like to do this in part because of that last bit, because it's just, sometimes you just can't get a, 
a paragraph or a couple lines out of your head and it just kind of sits there. Um, and I, I'm always interested to see if we touch on the same ones or, you know, what, what's kind of unique about each individual person's passages that they take away. Sarah Jane, you look like you might have one. I'm going to be really predictable, predictably sentimental. I like the bit about the baby playing on the kitchen floor and then wanting a mum. Can you read it for us? It's quite long. Should I just do a little bit of it? Yeah, do a little bit of that. This is where Glory's... Sorry, I was going to say, this is where Glory's not talking to anybody else, right? She's just remembering here. This is not... That's one of the things I think is great about this scene is we're getting into her head. It's one of the few times we got more Glory going back to what we were talking about last week. We were hoping for more glory. And we got more glory in a way that was not also more Bowden and also not more Jack. Sorry, I interrupted you as you started there. But No, and on that as well, this analepsis is extremely sad because it seems to communicate something about glory's own desire for children that's never mm. fulfilled mm-hmm. as far as we know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. They went out to the orchard and the girl stood silently with the baby on her hip and watched glory pick apples. When she had picked enough for the pie, but would pick a few more for the girl to take home, she said, we got apples. Well, of course they would have them. There were apple trees everywhere. Anyone had ever thought to plant them, like lilac bushes and gooseberries and forsythia and rhubarb. She and the girl went into the house and set the baby in the sunlight on the kitchen floor. Her mother gave her a toy. She pulled out of her pocket, buttons on a string and said, at home, she's got a milk bottle. So Glory decanted a pint of cream into a drinking glass and rinsed it out and put it on the floor by the baby's knee. The girl knelt beside her and poured the buttons from her hand into the bottle, then out again, and the baby laughed and did awkward and purposeful things for a while with her toys. And Glory started to make pastry, talking aloud as if to remind herself of the fine points of the process, the need for careful measurement. The girl sat at the table, sipping a root beer, Then the baby's back began to round with the weight of her head and she pitched over on her side and began to kick and fuss. (laughs) Glory said, oh, poor thing, and took her up and swayed with her and kissed her teary cheek. And the baby struggled and wept and yearned away from her with a weight and strength that surprised her, holding out her arms to her mother. The girl took her and settled her on her hip and the baby leaned her head against her shoulder, sucked her hand and drew her breath in gasps of relief. You just ain't her mama, the girl said. No use crying about it. I thought that was quite good, but... <laughs> I like how you do the American accents. By the so way. I was really self-conscious I, about that. Way better than I could do it, an English accent. <laughs> um, There's a couple moments in this reading that had that crying thing for Glory. People telling her not to cry, but the, the story didn't tell us that she was crying in, until then. And I just thought that was beautiful, like just beautifully written. Heidi, what's your passage? Uh, Mine is on this book. It's page 247. It's when they find Jack in the car, when she finds Jack in the car, she's trying to take care of him and she's imagining him stuffing his shirt into the, wherever that is, the exhaust pipe. She had stopped crying, but she had to sit down in the porch. She put her head on her knees She imagined him in that bleak old barn in the middle of the night, stuffing his poor socks into the DeSoto's exhaust pipe, and then, to make a good job of it, his shirt. He'd been wearing his favorite shirt, the one with the beautiful mending on its sleeve. 
all that drunken ineptitude and frustration, his filthy hands, everything he could reach in the engine pried at, pulled loose. She couldn't leave him alone for more than a few minutes, but her father needed her too. She might call Lila, not yet. Her family was slower to forgive a failure of discretion than they were to forgive most things actually prohibited in scripture. If Jack's notions of privacy were generally indistinguishable from furtiveness, there was only more reason to be cautious about offending them. Was this what they had always been afraid of? That he would really leave? That he would truly and finally put himself beyond the reach of help and harm, beyond self-consciousness and all its humiliations, beyond all that loneliness and unspent anger and that unsolved shame and their endless, relentless loyalty to him? Dear Lord, she had tried to take care of him, to help him, and from time to time he had let her believe she did. That old habit of hers of making a kind of happiness for herself out of the thought that she could be his rescuer, when there was seldom much reason to believe that rescue would have any particular attraction for him. That old illusion that she could help her father with the grief Jack caused, the grief Jack was, when it was as far beyond her power to soothe or mitigate as the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. She had been alone with her parents when Jack left, and she had been alone with her father when he returned. There was a symmetry in that that, must, that might have seemed like design to her and beguiled her with the implication that their fates were indeed intertwined. Or returning herself to that silent house might simply have returned her to a state of mind more appropriate to her adolescence, a lonely schoolgirl at 38. Now there was a painful thought. Mm. So that's two paragraphs. Every, every one of, the, of um, Glory's, like, deep, deep wounds that we know about is there. Um, and I, I have almost like this meta reaction to it. I picture her in her state of distress, the same way she's picturing Jack in his. And just, I have the same desire to like soothe her and tell her it's not your fault. This isn't your burden. Like this, that she has about Jack. And then I just really, was so moved by that image of drunk Jack, all dirty, trying to hide what he's done and in so doing, destroying the beautiful thing that he has, that shirt that means so much to him. Hmm. Um, I heard someone say it's like she's gaslighting herself. Yeah, that's a great description. It's, man, it's, it's just, these books are so... Tolstoyan, right? Every unhappy family <laughs> is unhappy in its own way. So. Um, well, I'll just read one quick passage here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for me, it's on 238. It's towards the end. It's when they get back from the movie theater the, with the women and Robbie do. Ames was visibly relieved to see the three of them. Robbie scrambled into his lap full of the unspent energy the movie had summoned up in him. You should have gone, Papa. You should have seen it. He slapped the bottom of his Cracker Jack box and a few sticky morsels fell out on the table in front of his father. I'm saving some for Toby. Then he said, here, and slid off his lap and went to Jack and dug out a few morsels for him. There's supposed to be a prize in here, he said. Do you see any prize? Jack took the box and tilted it to the light and looked into it. He said, I believe you must have eaten it. Robbie laughed. No, I didn't. You were so interested in that movie, you didn't notice. It could have been a silver dollar and I bet you wouldn't have noticed it. Oh, yes, I would. I'd notice a silver dollar. It's probably a rubber snake. I bet it was a tarantula. No, it wasn't, Robbie said. Let me see. But Jack held the box away from him, peered into it, 
then extracted something between his two fingers between two fingers. You're a pretty lucky kid, he said. I'd like to have one of these. What is it? What? Jack laid the little toy on the table. That, he said, is a magnifying glass. Robbie looked at it. It isn't very big. Well, you have to start somewhere. Start what? Looking for clues. Here, I think I have a spot on the cuff of my shirt. What does it look like to you? Robbie peered at it through the little lens. It just looks like a spot. Jack shrugged. Well, there you are. Case closed. Robbie laughed, and so did Lila. Ames said, Robbie, why don't you run off and find Tobias? He'll want to see what you've got there. Maybe you can find a bug to look at. Now run along. The boy hesitated and then left. Jack turned to look at Ames, a bland, weary look that meant, I understand why you do that, why you send your child away. So um, one of the things I like about this is there's like a lot of conflicts kind of in the heart of the book in this scene, but also so much of so much complexity in Jack because there's the like inner turmoil and the self-awareness and the conflict between him and Jack and the guilt, I mean, him and Ames and the guilt. But then there's also the sense that he's so good with kids. He probably could be a great dad. You know, there's all these things that, that make him so complex in this moment. And it's just a nice bit of a nice delicate bit of scene crafting to uh, the voice of the child and the humor and all that kind of, that kind of thing. So I think uh, Robinson's really good at that. Uh, Sarah Jane, what are you going to be looking for as we get to the end of the book? Well, Elizabeth has really got me thinking about Jack. And in the section we just after you just read, actually, there's another reference to Jack as Lazarus. He thinks of himself as some kind of Lazarus. And then obviously we have that failed suicide attempt. Um, so I guess I'm going to be looking at that idea. Is Is Jack back from the dead is he is he going to be raised from the dead is he going to get to that point of rock bottom and be resurrected um he likes to think of himself like lazarus with a memory of cerements about him no matter how often he might shave or comb his hair heidi what about you i mean we're gonna have to find out jack's deep fault line right like the the reason why the, the reason why uh, Ames's sermon hit him so hard, the reason why he's asking the question, the question, you know, the, something about fathers and sons still to come out. Heidi, speaking of, All the speaking of fathers and sons, how soon do you have to go pick up your kids? I'm good. <laughs> 3.15. All right. Any final thoughts from either of you? Although really that's mothers and sons, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Parents. Parents and children. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. General category of relationships works. <laughs> A- any final Another thoughts? Complicated relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you and your Jack? <laughs> no, I mean, yes, of course we've complicated. I just met mothers and sons. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, but not what this novel's about. Where is the mom? Well, she's dead. She doesn't even have a name. That That is very interesting. Very interesting point. Let's make one it's up. A, it's, what do you think it should be? missing. If you had to name it's, the mother's character, what would you have named her? Karen. <laughs> Patience. It's 2020. Patience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something abstract. <laughs> it's probably something like Mary. Something bitter. Yeah. Um, Sarah Jane, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. No, just silly names. Uh, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you're called Patience or Perpetua. 
It's not okay. Me. Well, before we came on the air, since we have a couple of minutes, I was getting a bunch of texts from my friends from church who were all debating top five condiments. So, what are your top five condiments, Heidi and Sarah Jane? And then you get a chance. Um, mine is coarse ground mustard, number one. It's a good one. Wasabi, sriracha mayo, um, and then probably Dijon mustard, which I really like a lot. And then does like hot fudge count as a condiment? A different kind <laughs> yes, of food, it but does. is it, it can, a condiment? It can okay. stand on its own. Yeah, that's a it dessert condiment. I go by that. All yeah. right. Okay. Those it's are mine. created for its own purposes, not for the purposes of cooking something okay. else. I have that's another question for then. What about, I, this isn't on my list <laughs> like because Everybody I don't just even, left, just turned off the podcast. I like it on an average amount. It's not one of my favorites, but I'm curious. Does whipped cream count as a condiment? Ooh. Yes, I think that I accept that. As a okay. compliment. All right. Sarah Jane? It's still not on my list. I'm just curious. I'm really, I'm really curious about your category for condiment. That's interesting. Well, my number one would be salt, obviously. Yeah. That this we is, already this have is, food without it. <laughs> yeah, this two is a good would one. Be black pepper. <laughs> the other three, I don't know. I suppose something like rose. Harissa paste is pretty good mm. if you want to give something mm. a kick. Um, what have I got in my fridge? Oh, well, cranberry sauce with chicken or turkey. Is that a condiment okay. or sauce? That's not a condiment. Okay, so here's no. the thing. I think it, it can count. I don't know. Would you okay, eat it by itself? Vinegar. Would you eat it by itself? Mm. That's a sauce. I'm wrong. Cranberry sauce is a sauce. It's even called cranberry sauce. That's not half that argument. <laughs> yeah, but I think lots of things are called sauces that really are just condiments. Okay, what about balsamic vinegar? I say that counts. That counts. Yeah. Worcestershire sauce, do you have that in America? Mm-hmm. We do. Liam Perry. We do have that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't really know how What's to pronounce it, though. What's sauce? I'm not doing very it's well It's called this, a sauce, though. It's called a sauce. It's a sauce. It's but there's a, a difference between a sauce that you just add to things. Although that might actually be tricky because you don't, you're not just going to add like a hot dog or something. You're going to add it to, to change the flavor profile of something. I don't know, but I'm, what else do condiments do? I'm really confused by the idea of having top five condiments because in my narrow You've not mind, had conversations with me enough then. <laughs> there are, no, there are only two and it's salt and pepper and that's it. You say pass the condiments, it means... Please, may I have some salt and pepper? See, in America, right, though, so, we eat hot dogs like crazy people. Yeah. And so ketchup and mustard are like mm-hmm. the condiments. Relish. I have to say, I've spent a lot of time in England, a lot, many months, many months in a row of my life in England. You guys are not the people. masters <laughs> of condiments. We are You're not. the masters of many things. Not that. <laughs> the English language. <laughs> that is true. I can see you on that You have perfected point. the English language. Americans have perfected... <laughs> condiments <laughs> which in the grand scheme of things is nothing to be proud of <laughs> can we get an etymology on condiments yeah i would like to know what the, the etymology of that word is what are yours david okay so i think uh, a grainy mustard would be in my top six to say we're gonna say put that at six because i don't really know where to put it i love mustards Mm-hmm, um, like an olive oil and garlic vinaigrette type thing. Um, sriracha aioli, Cholula hot sauce, Good uh, pico, pico de gallo, 
and Duke's mayonnaise. Okay. Those are salt. Those are good choices. But salt those and pepper. Sauces. I accept them. Salt those and are sauces. See, there's okay. That's fine. But like, you could have a condiment that's a sauce. I would argue it's just not. It's just does. It stops being a. If it's a self-contained thing, is a condiment. It can't just be like I took the sauce from my chicken and I poured like and I poured it over my rice and thus it's a condiment. That's not a condiment because it's the result of the preparation of the chicken. You're right. I've just looked it up on the Oxford English Dictionary and it's from the Latin condira to preserve, which means to pickle. Hmm. So pickles, I choose pickles as number one then. I choose dill pickles. I choose sweet and sour chickle, pickles. I choose um, pickled okra. I choose pickled peaches. And then I choose pickled, I don't know, anything else that's pickled. I like all pickled things. So never had pickled peaches. No, you've never, never had pickled peaches. Well, you don't live in the South. No. We pickle, everything gets pickled in the South. So have you had pickled peaches? So. I've yeah, Peter Peter Pipers. In fact, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, for just in case anybody else is still here, we should probably go ahead and sign off. But there's a lot. Of, <laughs> I'm sure we're missing 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 some kind of. I'm like just as interested in this conversation. <laughs> hot fudge about. is kind of a good one though. So, I really enjoy hot fudge. That's a mm-hmm. that it's not pickled. Pickled hot fudge would be a weird combination. No, no. So that wouldn't be on your list of pickles. It would. I would try it. Be on your list I would definitely try it. How would you even do that? You can't pickle a liquid. You let it harden and then you put it in pickled, pickling stuff. You let hot fudge not be hot anymore. Mm -hmm. Let it throw it in there and see what happens after like six months. You have to put it in vinegar. Vinegar. Yeah, it would, it would be terrible, but I would try it. I didn't say it would be good. (laughs) I'm coming out to visit tomorrow. So pickled peaches. We'll have to find some. I'm sure there's some around because peaches were in season until like july so we'll be able to find some somewhere i would think yes are people are olives a a big thing in england Um, they are consumed yes (laughs) um yeah i mean i'd say that they they are more of a big thing in italy but well well yeah yeah, greece (laughs) yeah okay the reason i ask that actually i have a i have a personal reason for asking that because the first the first food food I ever ate was was green olives because my mom was Canadian and my grandparents, her parents ate olives at every meal. And so my grandfather would feed me green olives, like, you know, with little pimentos and stuff on them and stuffed olives, all hmm. that sort of thing. And he'd feed me those olives, pickles. So I have this, I love uh, everything like that, probably because it was the first thing, the first real food that I ever ate. But I'm wondering now if they were English and French and, and Scottish. So I'm wondering if they that like that came from their heritage, having like I think my grand great grandmother was an immigrant to Canada from England or from France or Scotland or one of those places. I don't know. I don't know that much about it. But I'm wondering if their heritage in, led into that's why I asked about that, or if it was just that they liked olives. <laughs> So then my mom grew up eating olives. Like all, we have like an olive tray at every big meal, you know, and not like a charcuterie board, but like a tray that was just full of olives and pickles, different kinds of olives and pickles, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Wednesday night. <laughs> you know? um, so I don't know, maybe not. 
maybe that's so, so it's probably not an, an English thing. I would love to answer that question, but I don't think I can. Yes, olives are popular here, but I think you're going to need to go to your family archives and find out the reason why. I think olives are just popular everywhere. My children also love olives. We eat a jar of black olives at like every meal. And I just watch, they just eat them as like a side dish, not as a condiment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they put them on their fingers. Do they do that? I would never admit that my children would do something like that at the table. My kids. Especially in the presence of an English person. But your kids are much more well behaved. Oh, Elizabeth sure. does that with raspberries, puts them on a finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. It's just a part of childhood. Now let's talk fruit for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the blackberries are in season David right now. David loves to rank oh, things. Yeah. It's like David's favorite oh, thing to see. do. I see. I didn't know He's this. A, yeah. So sometimes if topics of conversations come up and David's involved in the conversation, I immediately start ranking in my head you so that I'll have an answer for yes. like in 10 minutes he's going to ask. I can't help it. So, this, it's just what I do. It's like, you know, like I you keep... said the condiments thing and like then moments I was like, okay, he's going to ask my top five. <laughs> I better have top 10 prepared. No, yeah. But <laughs> I mean, at the end of the year, I'm ranking, you know, making lists. I'm just a list maker. So lists, rankings, I'll keep lists of all the food that I ate during the year. And it's just, I think it's just a way of helping me make sense of the world because otherwise I am, I have an unproductive brain. We said that last week, we discerned that last week. So I have to make lists to create some order. Uh, But speaking of disorder, Heidi has to go pick up her children and I would not want to throw more disorder into her life. Thanks, David. Uh, than there already is. So we should probably sign off. <laughs> Fair. So, so for Heidi White and for Sarah, Sarah Jane Bentley, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading and happy ranking.